Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, senior story editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mundia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 44. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. And this is Zach. And we are bringing you the latest comic news from the past two weeks, as well as comic reviews from the past three weeks. We'll cover a total of ten comics in this episode, but we do not have a lot of news, so we should be sitting at about an hour and 15 minutes, hopefully. <laughs> How do you figure that? Alright, so, speaking of that, let's get into comic news. Uh, like I said, not a ton, a lot, ton to go over, but uh, we do have some things. On May 10th, there was... An interview done by Comic Book Resources with Grant Morrison talking about Bruce Wayne's return. And there's a couple highlights. We're going to go over some of them. Uh, Josh is going to read for Comic Book Resources, and I will read for Grant Morrison. Let's start with what everyone is talking about today, the big reveal in Wednesday's release of Batman and Robin, that Oberon Sexton is, in fact, spoiler alert, the Joker. Did you feel you couldn't tell this epic Bruce Wayne story without the Joker playing a role? It's obviously been planned on for a long, long time. The Joker had to be in it. The Joker is the yang to Batman's yin and yin to his yang. So he's always had to be there. And because he's played such an important part in Batman R.A.P., we really wanted to see Dick Grayson and Damien up against the Joker. That was the one that I thought was important for fans to see. So it seemed inevitable that he would be in there. And as I said, the character has been kind of haunting the book since Batman Robin number one. There's been these little scenes here and there hinting that it was the Joker. So it's been building up for a long, long time. But it's also, as you'll see in number 13, which I think is going to be, ha ha ha, well, perhaps are going to be really excited about it. It's quite cool. And Fraser Irving's art is amazing. But the Joker is quite different than, the, than anything we've ever seen before. So again, we wanted to keep ramping it up and keep doing new things and keep doing new twists and turns that people hadn't seen before. How tightly will the return of Bruce Wayne weave in and out through what's happening in Batman and Robin? Yeah, everything starts to connect and interweave, so readers have to buy all the books. <laughs> We're the opposite of Brightest Day. We're the black mask for publishing. But basically, all the books start to connect, which is why I'm doing a couple of Batman issues with Tony Daniel. Batman 701 and 702 and also 700, which is the big anniversary issue. All these things kind of tie together over the next six months. We wanted to do something big around the celebration of Batman's number 700. So it's six months of Batman stories all kind of interconnected. As fans with not a lot of money say, oh, F me. Again, I know you don't want to jump too far ahead, but I know as far back as R.I.P., you thought you might be done with Batman at that point, and then this new direction with Dick and Damien presented itself. Now it sounds like you have years left of stories. So this isn't the beginning of the end of your run with Batman, is it? Oh, definitely not. There are some things that were inserted into the story from the very beginning, and you'll see them, you'll see as all of this stuff evolves. 
I kind of always thought that it would just cop out, cop out at a certain point. But suddenly, all of these different strands started to make themselves more and more obvious to me, and I had to stay on until the conclusion. So really, what I'll be doing is taking it right back to where we all began, all this with Batman and Son. It's a big mega story that's kind of makes sense to me in my head, so I had to make it work. So I'll definitely be staying with Batman in some form for the next couple of years to finish the story off. So surprise, surprise, Grant Morrison's not going to be leaving Batman anytime soon. And is it a surprise, surprise that I am happy about that? Definitely not. Yeah. I have mixed feelings. Uh, On the one hand, it's kind of cool to have an overarching story, but on the other hand, too, you do kind of get quote-unquote event fatigue when the whole Batman thing for the past few years has just been one continuous event leading into event leading into event. Oh, but the best part is it's actually just one giant event with small sub-stories. Yeah, whatever. They could label it however they want. It would be nice just to get some day-in-the-life stories once in a while. Well, that's oh, but that's what we have potential for. Yeah. Yeah. I'm counting on it. All right, so next thing we've got on May 11th, Morrison ended up talking to Techland about Batman number 700 and various other things. Uh, one highlight, uh, I'll read the question and Zach will read for Grant Morrison. You're also writing three issues of Batman this summer. What's going on there? Well, number 700 is my version of a traditional anniversary issue, so it's a kind of one-and-done story. Tony Daniel is doing the Batman of the past, which is Bruce Wayne. Frank Quietly is doing Batman and Robin of the present, with Dick Grayson and Andy Kubert is doing Batman of the future, which is Damien. And there's also a final section with David Finch doing the Batman of the far future, right up to Batman 1 million it's three Batman, only impossible crime, and there's a time travel story involving Professor Nichols, who vanished from Batman around 1964. And it's got the Neil Adams Batman and the Carmine Infantino Batman. It's a mind-breaker of a story. It took me two months to write this monster. I hope it works. It's a standalone celebration issue. It's got a bunch of pinups in the back as well, I think. Then number 701 and number 702 are me and Tony Daniel again doing what happened to Batman between the end of Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis to basically bring everyone back up to speed before Bruce comes back. And also, just because I wanted to try something different, something I've really missed is the kind of literary strand which has been lost in cinematic comics. One kind of comic I haven't seen for a while is narration from Bruce that really shows his point of view and takes us into his head in the way that we've never seen before. Okay, so Batman 700, we kind of already knew all that information. That's not really anything new. The pinups were announced at uh, C2E2 by Mike Martz at the Batman panel. Besides that, uh, I I gotta say I am kind of interested in seeing 701 and 702 possibly being from Bruce Wayne's perspective, as that could be pretty interesting. Yeah, and I agree with what he's saying to a degree that we don't see a lot of stories anymore coming from Bruce's Bruce's point of view. We don't even see a lot of inner monologue in too many books anymore. So, you know, I guess if he's going to kind of try to tackle that a little bit further, that that's a good thing. I have nothing more to say about Graham Morrison. <laughs> Imagine that, son. All right, so on May 12th, Newsarama had a chance to talk with Fabian Nasiza about his upcoming work on Red Robin. Now, there's a bunch of stuff to cover. 
I will read the questions for Newsarama, and Josh will read for Fabian Masiza. Now, these answers are very long, but there's a lot of information to take in from this about what we can see in the next coming year, as well as maybe even longer than that. So let's go through these. You're picking things up with Tim just having finished a long time mostly alone. Now that the rest of his peers believe him and know Bruce is alive, will we see him brought back into the fold a bit? Check out pages 1 through 3 of issue 13 for a fun answer to that question and a kick double page spread by Marcus Toe and Ray McCarthy. Yes, Tim is assimilating and feeling more comfortable again with the other members of, of the burgeoning Bat family, but the word burgeoning is a key aspect is internal conflicts during our opening arcs. Are there too many people in Gotham now fighting the good fight? Can he do what he wants to do and how he wants to do it without tripping over too many other people? Can he live at the tower with Dick and Damien or back at the mansion where Oracle and Batgirl train? Or should he get his own place? In the first year of Red Robin, he had a taste of international adventure, which he's also done plenty of in the past. But I think the last year got Tim thinking about how external crime can and does affect Gotham and vice versa. A poppy bloom in Afghanistan affects Des Moines. As for Tim now, the intricate web of how things tie together is getting even more complex. And all of that is part of his evolution. Is Tim back in Gotham City to stay now? Are there threats there unique to him that say Batman, Robin, the Birds of Prey, Batgirl, Ragman, and other Gotham heroes are someone somehow not equipped to take on in comparison? The plan is for Tim to spend some of his time in Gotham and more of his time doing international operations. As far as how Red Robin's approach is unique in comparison to the others you cite, well, our first arc is called The Hit List, and it plays off themes I touched on in my last Robin arc with the search for a hero story. Specifically, how much can Tim control of the actions and reactions that create the supply and demand dynamics of crime in Gotham? If you create a literal hit list of targets you want to proactively go after, can you fashion a system of organized chaos? that allows dominoes to topple smartly from one to the next and create a pattern of success? Can the planning used to capture links lead directly into bringing down Scarab, which in turn gets corrupt detectives, Cavallo and Wise arrested, and results in reporter Vicky Vale getting thrown off the trail of the Bat family's secret identities? Wow. Most other Gotham characters, except for maybe Oracle, and superheroes in general, tend to be reactive to metahuman criminal activity rather than proactive. Even Batman tends to react a bit more. Tim's method of operation will, will focus on his meticulous planning. Part of the reason for that is crafting the kinds of stories that require carefully thought through cause and effect. Action and reaction within an issue and between issues isn't easy. Trust me. Jumping back in the Tim's adventures reminded me of that. It takes me twice as long to write an issue of Red Robin than an average assignment, but it makes me four times as happy. Any other teases you'd like to drop our way about Red Robin and or Tim Drake's near future? Jesus, I hopefully could rattle off story ideas I'm developing for the next 10 pages. The hit list runs from issue 13 to 16 with an epilogue in issue 17, and it really helps settle Tim down in Gotham. Takes down a few outstanding villains he's wanted to address, confirm his relationship with the Bat family, and establish his method and base of operations. We can also tease a few questions that take us towards issue 25 and beyond. Awesome, this guy has an actual plan and a direction. Why does Tim need crutches when Red Robin doesn't? What is Linksy's big surprise, and what if Tim doesn't believe it's true? What international operatives does Red Robin have hunting for the Council of Spider Assassins? Who has Ra's al Ghul ordered to take away Tim's V-card, and will she succeed? And if she doesn't succeed, who else is on that ever-growing line looking to draw that card? 
seriously, I'll stop now or else I'd never stop at all. If the readers enjoy reading this book, just a fraction of how much I enjoy writing it, I think everybody will be in for a real fun time, especially Tim, apparently. Okay, so, wow, there's a lot uh, going on there. Yeah. Going back to, one, it is nice to know that uh, Fabian has a plan to carry him until at least issue 25, as he said even maybe past that. I think he's going to bring the life to Red Robin that Brian Q. Miller has done to Batgirl. So I think that's a good thing. Um, and we know, obviously, he can deal with the character. We don't even need to go into that. But let's cover some of these uh, these hints to some of these questions, teases. Um, specifically, now, we really don't need to cover any but the last two. Who has Ra's al Ghul ordered to take away Tim's V-card, and will she succeed? And if she doesn't succeed, who else is on that ever-growing line looking to draw that card? So, uh, real quick, who do we possibly think Ra's al Ghul could order to do that? Talia? Because isn't that how they ended Red Robin issue 12? That she's like, ah, he can be my uh, apprentice heir now. I mean, I think a lot of fans will be pushing for Stephanie Brown. I don't think anybody Uh -uh. would care less about uh, Prudence. As I, I feel bad for Tim if his first is with a bald chick, but whatever. They did like the special virginity issue of Robin back during Chuck Dixon's run. It was like a public service announcement where uh, his his original girlfriend Ariana she got raped. So her reaction was to dye her hair blonde and then dye it back brunette again and then try and have sex with Tim. And then Tim like she shows up in a nighty. And then Tim gives a whole speech to the readers about how virginity is a precious thing that needs to be saved. And it's a very tender moment, and they decide to wait until after marriage, and then they hug. But then, like, the girl's uncle walks in and just sees his niece in a nighty hugging Tim and proceeds to try and kick his I am glad to see that Fabian has a plan coming up until issue 25. That's really comforting. And I know people are, who listen to the podcast for years are going to be very surprised to hear me talking positive about Fabian. But it's I get the sense from these interviews that not only does he have ideas, but that he knows what he's doing. I'm a little hesitant with this whole, you know, the quest for Tim's virginity plot. But let's see where it goes. As ridiculous as it is. Oh, ridiculous, but I, yet it also makes it interesting. I, I will say this, though. I don't agree with his thing about Bruce is more reactive than proactive, because wasn't that one of the whole points of War Games? That was, like, one of his proactive plans that uh, kind of blew up in his face. Well, Fabian wasn't on the books then. Yeah, I, I know. I'm just saying. Fabian was saying that he thinks that Tim is more proactive and Bruce is more reactive, and I would tend to disagree with that. I think that Bruce is pretty proactive i would say bruce is proactive as well i think tim is more proactive or at least in the last year he's Bru- been a lot more bruce proactive. is much more cautious and hesitant than say tim would be yeah but like if godzilla was to attack the city tomorrow bruce would be like aha i predicted that godzilla would be here at this exact day and there's a, there's a spot that's why i buried this thing deep under the ground in the spot that godzilla is about to step in 60 years ago aha aha Anybody home? <laughs> Listen, Boopsy, even though you never call and never write, I still got a soft spot for you. So moving along, on May 14th, uh, Gail Simone talks with comic book resources about the first issue of Birds of Prey and what the future holds. So Josh will read for comic book resources, and Zach will read for Gail Simone. In terms of the first arc, where do we pick up with Oracle, Black Canary, Huntress, and Lady Blackhawk? Will there be ties back to your first run with the characters and plot threads that you'll be able to complete? 
there's a moment where one of the birds shows how much she missed the rest of the team that I think is very telling. But it's more like, okay, why did we ever split up than bitter recriminations? I think it's very clear by the end of the issue that the birds are most definitely back. Ed draws the book like he never left, and it just looks amazing. Can you share any details about the first arc? Which, oh, which villain or villains will they face? Well, the penguin's in it, but his role is tough to summarize. Let's just say he's completely messed up. There's a new villain, one we're all pretty crazy about, and there are a lot of twists along the way. The birds find themselves on everyone's bad side. I think the new villain they're talking about is the White Canary. Yep. Which we found out in issue one. Which, Combo Resources was a little late posting this interview, considering... They posted it a couple days after the issue came out, and they still had her responding with answers that she would have been given before the book came out. All right, so that's all of the news we've got. Uh, Let's go into our upcoming trade paperbacks for the next two weeks. There is only one trade paperback coming out in the next two weeks, and that's on June 9th. We have Superman Batman Finest Worlds, and the solicitation reads, Collecting three Titanic tales from Superman Batman number 50 through 56, including the Little League's Big DCU Adventure and What Happens When the Dark Knight Gains the Man of Steel's Powers. This will be 192 pages and be $14.99. Like I said, that's the only one. So, let's get into our comic reviews. And the very first one we have is Batman Robin number 12, which came out a decent amount of time ago. And we cover it now because we had to catch up with some other things. But by now, you probably already know this big spoilers, but we're still going to review it just like it came out last week. So, we start off the issue with Robin, who's being controlled by his mother, well, controlled by his mother, but also by Slade Wilson. Uh, Robin is attacking Batman repeatedly until Batman figures out what's going on and shocks Robin, and then the link is broken and is no longer established, sending Slade into some kind of convulsion back at the headquarters of Talia. We then cut to Bat, uh, Batman and Robin going to the Bat Bunker, Bat Cave. We're not real sure where it's at, but I assume it's the Bat Cave because we're at Wayne Mansion. And Dick is telling them about how he saw a giant bat when he was down in the caves. And they're trying to figure out different discoveries based on what he found in the cave as well as what he found underground um, as well as this giant bat. Well, as it turns out, uh, the manor was designed by Nathan Van Derm for Darius Wayne in 1795, and it was in a form of a W. But when you add in the likeway to Alan Wayne's crypt, along with the proposed pass of his abandoned funeral garden, something appears that is actually a bat signal. Then Dick says to Damien, I hope you're ready to pay a visit to your mom. That's where we're going now. So they uh, fly off to Talia's headquarters, they destroy some of the gear. Damien tells Batman he needs to talk to with his mother. They go off. Batman goes and talks to Slade and says, uh, you know, I can't wait till you're uh, all better because uh, we're, we're going to finish this. And right now you're the least of my problems because you basically look like you got thrown up by something. Robin is talking to Talia and he's telling her that he's pretty ticked off about the fact that she put machines in him and he, she says, I wanted to try to save you, but obviously it's too far now. And he says, you know, I like being Robin. There's no, no reason to save me. 
if if my father does return, this is the life I've chosen chosen to lead. And she says, you know, I, I respect your decision, but there's something I'd like you to see. She then opens up a room where she, in fact, has a test tube baby, who is a clone of Damien. And she tells him that she's too much a perfectionist to really accept Damien for who and what he wants to be. So she gives him permission to leave with uh, Batman and tells him that she is no that he is no longer welcome that he is now an enemy of the house of ghouls so we then cut to a scene in Gotham City where various people are meeting on a train with black hand and then we go back to underneath Wayne Manor where Alfred Batman Robin are walking through caves underneath Wayne Manor and they see Batman's cowl hung up on the wall with some antlers I guess basically letting them know that he's the original cowl that Batman had has been sitting there all this time. Hard to believe. I don't know how something like that could have lasted thousands of years, but whatever. I guess Batman's got some gear that can last. Uh, Then Batman proceeds to say, we've got to alert the Justice League. And Batman says, I need need to go to talk to Oberyn Oberyn Sexton about this. So he goes to talk to Oberyn Sexton. And then Batman basically says, you know, I I figured out exactly who you are. As soon as I started figuring out how all these people from the Black Glove organization started to die, it started to make a lot more sense because they're all jokes. And then we find out that Oberyn Sexton is actually the joke. And that is to be continued. Welcome, Python. (laughs) It's been a dog's age. Batman Confidential number 44, also titled Batman vs. the Undead, written by Kevin Van Hook with artwork by Tom Mandrake. The issue opens in New Orleans, where the mayor is holding a press conference to thank the Wayne Foundation for its contributions to the rebuilding of the city, specifically the Children's Hospital. As he speaks, a gaunt-looking man is breaking through a mausoleum and kidnapping the body of a dead girl. At the French quarters, we find Bruce Wayne fielding questions from the press. A female reporter then asks him flirtatiously if he might possibly need a tour guide, which he sarcastically replies, why not? We then cut to a woman standing on a balcony watching the rain fall when her boyfriend picks her up and begins dangling her over the rails. She begins to panic. He then brings her back over and he explains that he is leaving and he is searching for a former Arkham Asylum inmate named Combs that can help him. And the man and the woman then reveal themselves to be vampires. We then see Batman looking over the Big Easy. He then notices a shadowy figure on the rooftops as well and begins to follow. We then cut to two men looking over display cases in a museum of dead criminals and dead corpses of different kinds of races of animals and people. And it seems like that they're going to be used in some sort of ridiculous experiment. The two men congratulate each other on the partnership when the sinister-looking man, who I am guessing is Combs, stabs the other in the head and clearly did not want to be partners. We cut back to Batman following the man we learned earlier is a vampire, whose name is Dimitri. The man then breaks into the back of the museum and Batman follows him. Dimitri goes to attack Batman, but he's prepared and throws him on his back. They know each other and they are both in New Orleans in search of Combs. It seems the two are going to work together, but they are being watched by Combs on the surveillance cameras in the museum. We then see Combs go to the corpse of his former partner and cuts his head off and be- uses it to order the dead to rise. Batman and Dimitri hear Combs call for the dead and they stand on guard. Combs cuts the power and the dead museum corpses rise and attack Batman and Dimitri. To be continued. Who, who 
are you? I'm your worst nightmare. Right, and that's going to take us into Red Robin issue 12, which wraps up Chris Joe's run and wraps up the storyline that he's been running for a year. Basically, when we last left our chess pieces, they were all gathered against each other. Roz was going to have his revenge on Tim for destroying one of his bunkers over in, what was it, Europe or Asia? It was across the sea. That's all we need to know. There was various members of the Batman family that were about to be killed by the League's assassins. And uh, Tommy Elliot, who was disguised as Bruce Wayne still, is currently being held at uh, League of, I guess you can say, Gunpoint or Sword Points being forced over the sign over the whole Wayne Enterprises to Roz and his organization. Lots of people forget, though, that the Batman family has lots of friends from all over the DCU, and luckily Yost Yost remembered and Tim remembered, and he utilized them because those various members of the Batman family that were about to be attacked, like Alfred, Julie Madison, Barbara Gordon, Commissioner Gordon... Various people came to rescue them, like Wonder Girl, Man Bats, Huntress, and one of my favorite lines is everybody's checking in, like Man Bats saying Julie Madison is safe, and when it gets to Oracle, you see uh, Wonder Girl, she's in the Batcave, and she says that Cassandra Sandmar checking in, I think she uses her real name, which is kind of bad to use your, well, she doesn't have a secret identity, that's true, her identity's public, but she's saying checking in, Oracle's safe, she kind of uh, saved herself, and you see Oracle, she has her two nunchucks or whatever and you see the leaks people on the floor i thought that that was a pretty awesome barbara gordon moment as for Roz's plan to get wayne manor signed over to him well i loved how yost did this because i've been a critic of his run but he kind of tied together some things that have been going on since the early issues the reason why lucius fox was sending tam to find tim was he and bruce years ago had a plan in place that if something crazy ever happened if bruce ever did things like i don't know vowed to give away a million dollars every week like tommy elliott as bruce wayne did that the company would be signed over the tim drake there's some clause or whatever and that's what tim drake was doing when he got back to gotham and that's why tam brought him back so tommy elliott's uh, who's being held at gunpoint with roz's men at the lawyer's office they found out that they can't actually sign over wayne enterprises to roz because the owner of wayne enterprises right now is currently tim drake wayne so that part of Roz's plan is gone. So Roz and Tim battled. So during the battle, which Tim is realizing that he's probably not going to make it out of alive, he gets some pretty near fatal wounds from Roz's sword and then gets kicked out of the window. But luckily, when Tim wakes up, he's in the back cave because he was saved by Dick Grayson. And Dick and Stephanie's there. Damien's there. Alfred's there. They're all talking. And... Damien is being the little punk because over in Batman and Robin, he's kind of been handling the Wayne Enterprises boardroom stuff, and he's like, oh, I'm going to get you removed as head, you know, because I should be running the company. And Dick is chastising Tim a little bit for doing a suicide mission like that and saying, how'd you know that I was going to catch you? And then there's the whole tender moment, because you're my brother, Dick. Stephanie's still being a little frosty, though, and when Tim asks why, she says, when were you going to tell me about this? Well, remember last issue when Tam Fox let out that little bombshell about being engaged to Tim Wayne to throw Vicky Vale off the trail? It's now front-page headline news. So that's the hot water that Tim's in right now. Roz, who has gotten away, is going over recent events with Talia and this whole gauntlet that they've put Tim Drake Wayne through. They decide that uh, maybe Bruce isn't the perfect heir to the throne. 
that maybe now it's Tim, and that's what they're going to be focusing their energy on. And that is the end of Red Robin's first year, and the end of Chris Jost's run. Yes, I suppose I do owe you that much, Detective, since in many ways you are responsible for it. Alright, so that's going to take us into Batman 699. It's going to be the conclusion of the storyline that we last left off in 698. Riddle Me This, Part 2, written by Tony Daniel. Art by Gillian March. Where we last left off, Joe the Riddler was in a building, an abandoned building, and he had some Joker venom. Well, it turns out there was actually fake Joker venom. It wasn't the real stuff. And Batman's trying to figure out what exactly is going on. He needs to find out a little bit more about this Black Spell character. So he goes and visits Arkham Asylum. Well, he knows that Arkham Asylum doesn't really take kindly to him wanting to talk to uh, inmates. So he decides to break in and talk to Garfield Linz and proceeds to tell Linz that he's going to break him out and he's going to let him go. No strings attached because basically he's going to use Linz as bait so that Black Spell comes after it. So Linz decides that he's going to play along and say, okay, well, you know what, I'll tell you what I know about Black Spell. So he proceeds to tell him a backstory of a couple years ago he was at his apartment, and he had an envelope slide under his door. He opened up the envelope, and it was a picture of his friend, and his friend was dead as a doornail. Later that night, his friend came over, and they were laughing it up about this picture that showed him dead. And then a couple days later, cops showed up, and turns out that uh, his friend was actually murdered. So, a couple days later, an envelope shows up and says, Don't tempt fate, I'll give you instructions. Well, turns out Black Spell was actually recruiting Garfield Linz, also known as Firefly, along with the Riddler and a bunch of other people to basically skim money off of some mob bosses and nobody would ever miss the money. Well, Riddler decided that he, uh, after his accident, he got amnesia, he decided to become a private eye and started to be following some clues to try to figure out some of the things that he did before he had amnesia and started to find out about Black Spell. Well, Black Spell decided he was going to take off and take all the money. Well, that left Firefly and all the other people back with nothing to go to go with. So then we go back to Batman and he's outside of Black Spell's apartment and he's examining some stuff and he finds out that there was actually two victims in the room, not just one. And he finds this out by using a forensic flashlight and finds out that there's actually marks on the wall from latex gloves. We then cut back to the hospital where Riddler is making a recovery, not a huge recovery, but Commissioner's there asking the doctor whether or not he's going to be able to question him soon. Commissioner leaves after being told that he's not going to be able to question him for, you know, a couple more days. And there's a cop posted at the door. Batman is at the building where the Riddler was uh, given the toxin, and the building is actually burned pretty badly. Well, it was a fire that was specifically set to go off at a specific time. Then we cut back to the hospital, and we see the cop outside throwing some money and somebody says you know or the cop says you better make this look real somebody beats up the cop uh we then cut back to batman where batman finds out that uh the riddler is no longer there and goes to try to find black spell he finds black spell beating the riddler and is going to do something to the riddler batman shows up proceeds to tell riddler that he knows exactly what's going on and riddler is the one who's been doing this all along, Black Spell is just a pawn. Black Spell starts to turn into a tree. Riddler tries to take off, and 
this Black Spell character. I'm assuming this character is somebody who's been created for this storyline, but I've never seen this person. I've never heard of this person. I'll have to do some research to find out whether or not this person actually is a real character. But this is very strange. It's like a Poison Ivy slash Bane situation here. Um, he has arms that can extend like vines, but he's as big and as powerful as Bane. Um, very odd. Anyway, Batman proceeds to try to take out this Sebastian Black spell. Riddler ends up making an escape as Batman ties up Sebastian. And as Sebastian is tied up, the rain it starts raining and the water absorbs into his skin and he turns back to normal. We then see Black Spell here in jail and Commissioner Gordon is asking, So do you think he's a serial killer? And Alice Sinner says, You know, it's hard to say. He fits the profile for a serial killer, but the problem is that, unfortunately, until he talks to us, we won't know for sure. We then go to Edward Nigma's office where Batman is ransacking the place trying to find any proof or any clue of to where the Riddler went. He does not find any clues, but he does say eventually he will find the Riddler and the Riddler will have much to answer for, and he will in fact be the interrogator. And that is Batman 699. And that is Batman 699, but this is Batgirl issue 10. Dawn of the Technically Dead. Plague of the Techno-Zombies, yes. A book so 1950s sci-fi that it needed two taglines on the cover. If you recall from last issue, Calculator's back and he's infecting people with his nanites, which I never understood. And Oracle has a new lair that captures the internet in a big net without actually being connected to the internet. We open up the issue with Calculator later talking about his plan to his dead son who he keeps the corpse of nearby him because hey you know he's just that kind of loving father batgirl is talking to oracle over their comm links and oracle's once again saying you need to stay away from me calculators after me with a vengeance i took his daughter from him and i don't want him to find me and have it lead to you you need to stay out of this stephanie's a little reluctant but barbara well you know barbara you can't really argue with her Detective Nick Gage, who's Barbara's love interest, they had a date a few issues ago, he shows up at uh, the Gotham University at Barbara's office to talk to her about the events of last issue when somebody died while he was on the job and he feels a little guilty. Barbara's not in her office, but he does see some newspaper clippings of Batgirl, and it makes him curious that they have a common interest. Stephanie, in her civilian identity, comes in and sees Nick Gage there, and it's a little awkward for both of them. Stephanie forgets for a second that uh, Nick doesn't know her as her civilian identity, and she says at one point, how freaking awkward is this, not realizing that she's talking out loud. The two of them kind of have a heart-to-heart about, you know, having people in their lives, but she basically fumbles over her words, and as he leaves, she thinks, way to sell it, dork knight, way to sell it, because she kind of indicated through the dialogue that she was back her whole because Nick was talking about how no one cares about him. She says, I'm sure you've got more people looking out for you than you think. And her internal monologue was there. That was sweet, yet veiled enough, right? Oracle's also trying to get Wendy out of the line of fire when Calculator's doing all this, so she kind of left some metaphorical breadcrumbs that brought Wendy down to the firewall, which was Barbara's one of Barbara's many locations that we were talking about earlier, the one that captures the internet. And the lair is on lockdown, and it has a message for Wendy that she needs to be down there for a while for her safety and that there's enough food and water for her. Wendy is curious and techno-savvy. She's going to take some of this stuff apart to see it. 
calculator, meanwhile, activates the next part of his plan. Now that he knows what Oracle looks like, this is so confusing to explain, but basically anyone that's looking at a computer screen or a cell phone or an electronic, there'll be a signal sent to them that if they see Oracle, her face, they'll go after her. And a bunch of people in Barbara Gordon's class or who are texting and looking at their laptops, it goes off on them, and they start attacking Babs while she's teaching a class. Jordana, that uh, Stephanie's college antagonist she's looking at i guess um a picture of all the assistant professors and starts to try and go after barbara commissioner gordon he's looking at a picture of her everyone's going after barbara stephanie shows up and basically says aha you know i guess you need my help after all and tries to get barbara to the car but they're overwhelmed by people all over the college and i don't even know how to describe this but a bunch of the techno zombies start throwing up binary code or something on barbara and it encases her body and it looks like she turned to i don't even know (laughs) but she's all silver and frozen it's really weird and her internal monologue is just dot 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 which was kind of my reaction when i was reading this and it looks like stephanie has more problems ahead of her because then she's surrounded by other people who are infected with the nanites man bats catwoman and huntress and that's to be continued until the next issue before you throw everyone in a pot penguin you may find yourself in hot water bat girl how did you find this place? I just adore weddings, Penguin. Or funerals before weddings, Batgirl. Get her! All right, so that's going to take us into Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne, number one. Now, this issue is uh, longer than most uh, normal issues, but despite that fact, there's not going to be a whole lot to talk about. Um, the issue starts off with a bunch of cavemen talking about uh, some ship that's shown up and nobody knows what it is, it's something real shiny, and they're convinced that there's somebody inside of a cave with the old man who's in charge of their tribe, and he they are calling him the shiny one. Well, this person is in fact Bruce Wayne. He's walking around without his cowl or mask on, and but he is carrying his utility belt. They approach him and he starts talking some kind of gibberish. Coincidentally enough, one of the cavemen's names is Joker. How interesting is that? Bruce sees the uh, ship and proceeds to go towards the ship to see if there's anything worthwhile on there. He finds a bat signal that crumbles to pieces. He finds uh, Superman's cape as well as reminders of the symbols that he wrote on the wall in the cave, which uh, were of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. The old man who was in the cave with Bruce is now dead, but he was not killed by Bruce. He just died because of old age. And he has um, white fawns. Hard to say exactly what they are other than they're some kind of white rocks that are made into a necklace. And a rival tribe, I guess you call them at this point in time, tribe sees this and decides that they want these things. Well, uh, around the same point, uh, we there's a one of the caveman's sons is trying to become a man, and he's been given the uh, privilege of wearing the utility belt around his neck. They proceed to make dinner. They're eating dinner, and Bruce is eating a ton of food when all of a sudden he finds out. He realizes before anybody else that there is in fact this other tribe that is coming to attack them to say to get that necklace. Bruce saves the, the boy, who's supposed to become a man, as everyone else there gets murdered. Bruce then decides to leave the boy, sit in the bushes, and go attack some of these people. 
And it turns out that the uh, leader of the tribe is none other than Savage. Uh, they don't. They they say Chief Savage, but we would assume it's uh, actually Vandal Savage. Vandal Savage then takes Bruce back to his tribe, or I don't know his area that they live in, and they decide to beat him and throw rocks at him, and then tie him down or tie him down to the ground so that he can't leave. In the middle of the night, the uh, boy comes up dressed up uh, with a shield that has the bat symbol on it, as well as. He's wearing a mask. I'm not real sure what the point of the mask is, but... And he comes with a staff with a ginormous bat, basically the hide of a, uh, of a giant man bat. Um, he cuts Bruce free, gives him his utility belt, and they prepare to attack Vandal Savage in the morning. And they sure do an attack. Bruce uses a bunch of the devices that he has in his utility belt to take him out. And they run away, him and the boy run away, and they dive off a cliff. And as they dive off a cliff, the boy comes up, Bruce does not. Cut back to the tribe, where we find out Vandal Savage is actually being kicked out of the tribe because of the fact that he was responsible for the sun going away because they believed that Bruce was a god. Then out of nowhere, there's this big flash of light, and we see Superman... Booster Gold and Green Lantern talking about how there's no way Bruce Wayne is at this time period because we don't hear his heartbeat. Then we cut back to Bruce Wayne who's in the water and he's being pulled out by a woman and the woman is saying, Master Demon, whatever you are, what horse is this you rode in on? And then we see a giant star. Have a nice day. We open up Birds of Prey issue one with Black Canary. She's trying to handle an international incident. Some terrorists have kidnapped the daughter of some important political figures. It's pretty clear she thinks from her her internal monologue that they just intend to kill the girl and that it's not about the money or the political martyrdom or whatever. Before the situation winds up going south, she signals Lady Blackhawk to come up in her plane and help take care of the terrorist situation. Black Canary and Lady Blackhawk wind up saving the daughter of the political figures and lounge at what looks like the local hospital or UN when Lady Blackhawk surprises Black Canary by saying that they've just gotten a call from Oracle, who they haven't heard from in a long time. Oracle also calls Huntress, and we cut to Hawk and Dove, who are fighting a group of evil cheerleaders called the pep squad hawk is angry and he's showing no mercy and dove is trying to bring him down to earth and ever since he came back during this whole blackest night brightest day stuff he kind of hasn't been himself which dying and coming back to life will do that to you a few hours later they're at a bar with lady blackhawk and hawk is just being a general jerk drinking and mouthing off to people while dove and Lady Blackhawk talk about, you know, what's going on lately. As Hawk and Dove leave to go on their next adventure, Hawk asks about the blonde that she was with, and Dove says, I think that this is someone who you should get to know. So the three main birds, Black Canary, Huntress, and Oracle, reunite on a rooftop and gets a little hulky because Black Canary's saying in her internal monologue, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And what the heck? Why don't we read this scene word for word? Wait, Huntress, what is it, Helena? Don't. Don't you smart women ever know anything? I don't... I don't have a lot of... Well, I don't have any... Yes, you do. Yes, you do. What a moon we're under. It's almost too pretty. 
one day these women will learn to say what they really feel without thinking it makes them feel vulnerable. If I have to beat the living crap out of them to make it happen, I'm glad too, Huntress. Really glad. Aww. Well, why did Oracle call them all up there anyway, aside from the girly-girly scene? Apparently, somebody's been sending them very, very detailed files about their allies and about them. And if they don't agree to play their game by their rules, they're going to release these files and kill a bunch of people in them. And Huntress and Black Canary are wondering how bad these files are. Well, it has the list of all of the students that Helen has ever taught... It has where Charlie lives, which is funny because Oracle kind of abandoned Charlie, but forget about that. It has the address of Sin's foster parents. Sin was a little girl that Black Canary was taking care of for a while. And it has the exact jogging schedule and locations of, of Commissioner Jim Gordon. They're wondering when this mysterious person is going to contact them, and lo and behold, a canary signal gets lit in the sky. They follow the canary signal to see Penguin getting beat up by a shadowy woman, who they wonder if it's Cassandra Kane or Lady Shiva. And the Cassandra Kane supporters groan, thinking, oh no, Cassandra might be a villain again. But no, it's not Cassandra, as we see when this mysterious female assailant steps into the light after almost fatally stabbing Penguin. It's somebody called the White Canary, and to be continued. Okay, everybody. Freeze! Hey, I wanted to say it. Ezreal number eight, written by Fabian, with artwork by Ramon Bach. The issue opens in the past at Gotham City's Museum of Natural History. We see a young Michael Lane straying from his school group, admiring a knight. We then see a man begging a shadowy figure to let him keep his faith, who I assume is the shadowy figure is Ra's al Ghul. We then cut to Paris, present day, where we see Michael and the crew looking over a recently murdered family. The wife that is killed was lineage to the members of the Order of Purity, and they learn that they were murdered by cult members of the Eighth Deadly Sins. Michael then makes up a makes a top secret trip to Paris, where he and Adrian meet up with an unnamed woman who provides them with more information about the crime scene. As Michael begins to put the suit on, he senses the presence of the White Ghost. The two discuss Ra's al Ghul's interest in Michael and how Ra's is really allowing Michael to wear this suit of sorrows, considering it really belongs to him. Azrael then heads to the church, heads to a church, continues solving the riddles that were left at the crime scene. He then smashes the floor, only to discover some sort of hidden ritual area. The torch handles on the walls begin to burn, and so does the cross in on Azrael's chest. And he falls to his knees. We then see many lost souls begging Azriel to re- release his sins. He climbs his way out of the tunnel where he is attacked by the members of the Eighth Deadly Sins. They convince Michael to accept his sins, but he will not embody his truths and is continued to be beaten by the cult members. The White Ghost then appears and releases a fly, which flies into Michael's mouth, and he swallows it. And this makes it appear that Michael will become the eighth sinner, but we'll have to wait and find out to be continued. All right, and that's going to take us into Batman Streets of Gotham, number 12. We start off with a new story that's entitled The Carpenter's Tale. We're actually following the the girl who is putting together Harley, Ivy, and Catwoman's hideout, she was making the different areas be specifically for them. 
So she's at a bar and she's hustling a bunch of people in pool and she's winning a lot of money. And just as the uh, people there that she's hustling figure out that she's hustling, Batman decides to crash in and she leaves. And as she leaves, there's a car outside waiting for her and it's the broker. And the broker's telling her that there's somebody looking for some work and they're looking for death traps and everything else. She proceeds to ask... What is his cut? He says 40%. She goes, you're out of your mind. But then she's shown how much money she would actually be making. And she realizes 40% is not a whole lot of anything. We then cut to the next day where she's driving her van down to this new monarch, the, the Monarch Theater. And the place is all falling apart. She walks in, cuts the chain off, starts walking in. And then we see three people, a gentleman, a female, and a larger gentleman. And they're watching her on the screens, and as she is walking through the building, two men in ski masks decide to attack her, and very easily she decides to take them out with the tools that she has on her tool belt, such as hammers, quick seal, adhesive, and very interesting things. Well, it turns out this uh, this person she's going to be working for is calls himself the director. And he gives his little backstory. Basically, his uncle was in charge of one of the studios and made eight of the top ten money earners of all time. His uncle passed away. And the studio decided to tell him how to do movies, and he didn't like that. So he's decided that he's going to start a new genre of movies, and she want, and he wants her to build the sets for his movies. We then cut to St. Aidan's Orphanage, and Damien goes and visits Colin, and gives him a nice little surprise, takes him for a walk, and shows him a new bike, as well as a garage that are paid for that are now his. As he leaves, Damien says to himself, I gave him the bike because I wanted to thank him, but it also doesn't hurt to have somebody um, like Abuse on your side when you need him, especially when I need somebody else in my corner besides just Batman. We cut back to the carpenter. She's looking over a bunch of uh, drawings for the death traps. And essentially what has come to be is that this director, is his new genre that he wants to create is superhero snuff films where he creates unique ways of killing off superheroes. So, ultimately, the carpenter has no problem with this. She's not actually doing it. She's just creating the issues, and whether or not Batman can get around them has yet to be seen. Although she does create some very unique death traps nonetheless. So, at some point, she's eating lunch, and she decides to go try to find the director to ask him some questions, and finds out that she is actually going to be used as a test dummy for some of these death traps. And just as she's taught, telling herself she's quitting and she's going to leave, the two gentlemen that were in ski masks earlier in the issue knock her over the head with a piece of wood, and she awakes to see them standing over her. All right, so then we go to the co-feature, which, of course, has Manhunter, and we see, we pick up right where we left off with a gang of people, bad people, about to take off, uh, take on Ramsey and the dog, uh, the dog Thor. Uh, well, Ramsey very easily takes him out. Uh, we then cut to Jane Doe, who is back at that doctor, and the doctor says, Oh, we were able to create what you wanted, but I'm not sure it's going to last as long as you wanted to. 
We then see a bunch of pages of Kate Spencer and all these other people involved in her family going on and on about how they need to find the son. The two people back at the apartment hear a knock on the door and they think it's the pizza, but it's not. And then we find out that Kate Spencer and Monroe are going to meet the Gotham police in the paddy wagon because the people that Ramsey beat up are in there. He starts asking them questions. They refuse to give any answers. So Manhunter decides to tell them to talk. And all they say is that, in fact, they got beat up by a kid. We then go to the Gotham Marquis apartments where we find out that Ramsey is actually going to his mother's apartment. And as he knocks on the door and she opens it, Kate Spencer opens the door. But, in fact, it's not Kate Spencer. It's Jane Doe in Kate Spencer's body. And that is the Manhunter co-feature. Batman number 72 written by Paul Levitz with artwork by Jerry Ordway and this marks the first issue of a new storyline entitled Worship. The issue opens with Superman flying through space where it appears he is trying to prevent meteorites from landing on Earth. We then cut to Gotham where Batman awaits for the sun to set when the signal from Superman goes off and he learns that Lois has gone missing and Batman heads off to Metropolis. In space, Superman chases the meteor and smashes it into pieces, and it sends him falling into some foreign planet. And all the tiny fragments from the meteor begin crashing into the streets of this planet. Superman gets up and quickly promises the locals that he will fix all of this destruction, and he very quickly does. We then cut to Lex Luthor, somewhere on Earth, I'm assuming, who has been watching Superman the entire time, and this planet through this satellite experiment that he has been funding. Luther then prepares for Batman to go snooping around at LexCorp and orders the police on his payroll to stand guard and watch. In Metropolis, Batman continues his search for Lois. He catches up with two men who quickly spot him and take off driving through a garage door. Batman catches up with them and they crash into a pole. Batman demands from the driver to know where Lois is and off panel and then we we cut off panel and we don't know whether he tells him or not then somewhere in metropolis we see lois to tied to a a pole and surrounded by sticks and it looks like she's going to be burned at the stake a group of hooded men explain to her that sh- her rejecting superman was a big mistake that they cannot forgive and it has led them to have to kill her and they begin ch- chanting superman 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 in space superman quickly quickly heads back to metropolis hoping that lois isn't upset with him for being late and his words are, Lois will be burned at me. Little irony there for you. Not knowing what's really going on. To be continued. 
Alright, so that's gonna take us into a review wrap-up. So let's start off with Batman Rob number 12. I gotta say, I don't really dig Annie Clark's work. I might have said that I did in past issues, but after really contemplating a lot of things going on in this book, I gotta say, I don't really like the way he draws faces on people, specifically women. Uh, Talia al Ghul looks freaking ugly. Um, I also gotta say that Joker doesn't really look that that good as, a, as Joker, and I mean... There's a lot of people who've messed up the Joker, but there's probably even more people who've done a good Joker. And I don't see this as being a very good Joker. The conclusion of Oberyn Sexton's Joker, uh, I gotta say, it wasn't super hard to see coming. But at the same time, it was kind of a cool thing to see. Oh, Joker's been around all this time. Now, I guess Joker's not insane as they portray him in many, many different... Uh, books because how could he pretend as if he was a normal person who just wore this black mask all the time? I don't know. We'll have to see with that. Uh, I'm going to give this uh, three out of five batterings. I think I'm going to give it uh, four out of five batterings. It was a semi-satisfying conclusion. Uh, a lot of people said that they saw the Joker thing coming. It honestly took me by surprise. And everyone knows that I'm kind of a continuity guy sometimes. And I loved how they brought in uh, Slade Wilson to fight Dick Grayson, but not only that, but they brought up some of the personal history between him, like Dick mentioned uh, how Deathstroke had a hand in destroying Bloodhaven. That was pretty cool. It felt like a season finale almost, and it got me excited for the next storylines and everything else, so I'm going to say four out of five batterings. Yeah, I agree with Josh. Four out of five batterings as well, and I do, for me, the Oberyn and Sexton thing did catch me a little bit by surprise, but, um, you know, you're not going to hear me complain too much about Grant Morrison. But, yeah, Andy Clark, it did seem like he, his artwork did take a step down from the previous two issues. It was a pretty good, pretty good final act of this three-part story arc. So, four out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Batman and Robin number 12, four out of five batterings. <laughs> Moving along into Batman Confidential number 44. Going into this, I... I gotta say, I wasn't having super high hopes, considering this is the same team who did Superman Batman vs. Vampires and Werewolves, which, as you know, if Apple was here, he'd be telling you to use it as toilet paper. Didn't have high hopes. I gotta say, it did exceed my expectations, but at the same time, my expectations were so low, it didn't really take a whole lot to do that. So I'm gonna give this two out of five batterings. Yeah, I'm going to give it a one out of five batterings. It's the people who did Batman, Superman, Batman, Vampire, and Werewolves, and you can see that they haven't really learned much from that. Their craft hasn't really improved. Well, like the other two said, yeah, leave it to Kevin Van Hook to start writing an issue full of vampires and this voodoo magic and all this Dead Rising stuff. I thought Tom Mandrake actually was really like the highlight of the issue for me. I thought he... He drew a, a really good book. The problem I had was it's just there was there was a lot that uh, Kevin Van Hook tried to throw into this first issue with all these different characters that we don't see very often, and it was really confusing for me to enjoy this because I'm okay with stories like as ridiculous as this going on in a confidential book. But I just think I think the art book was really good. I thought Van Hook did a poor job of kind of setting things up, but We'll see, and I'll give it two out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Batman Confidential number 44 two out of five batterings. <laughs> Moving into Red Robin number 12. This was another one. Didn't expect it to really have a whole lot of inclusion, 
but it did, and surprisingly, it had a lot of conclusion. But I feel like I got I got cheaped. It was a it was a cheap trick to wrap up as many storylines as possible within a very few set of pages, and I find that to be a very cheap trick that uh, really should not be used because there's a lot of things that could have been explored. Now I do like there were some things that were revealed that you questioned since the very beginning, but they weren't things that needed to be revealed. But on the other hand, I feel that you know what happened with Razel Ghul in the last issue. With uh, Tommy Elliot, I think that was well. What was the point of bringing that up if it was just going to be, hey, you're going to sign over the company? And then the next issue was, hey, you can't sign over the company because you no longer own the company. Uh, I'm sorry, but that just seems like a useless tactic. That being said, I was pleased in some regards, but in other regards, I feel as if uh, we got cheated. But hey, you know what? I felt like I got cheated during Christio's entire run. So. I'm going to give it two out of five batterings. I'm going to give it a <laughs> five out of five batterings. I have not been a fan of Yost's style of writing, which is nonlinear and other things, but he, I, I could tell in those early issues that he got Tim Drake, you know, when he made references to stuff like Alvin Draper and other little continuity things, but it's just the first few issues were just all the same. It was just, you know, someone would tell Tim he was crazy. He'd say, no, Bruce is alive. It didn't go anywhere for a while. Once we got back to Gotham, this book improved. And this last issue, I don't like comparing comics to TV shows because it's different mediums, but I'm going to use this word again. It felt like a season finale. It wrapped up the storylines that it needed to, and it got you excited for stuff that's happening in the future. That whole twist about Tim now running Wayne Enterprises, that was something I didn't see coming, and they tied that whole thing back to the beginning that I forgot to mention in my summarization that the reason why Tim thinks that Bruce is alive is because he saw a picture of Bruce on the wall in issue one. Why he didn't just tell Dick and Alfred that, I don't know. I guess, though, he thought that they would have said, oh, you're crazy, like they wound up doing anyway. And the whole situation about him being fake engaged to Tam Fox, it's there's some good stuff in there. There's some funny stuff in there. I like the whole thing about Oracle in that one panel having defeated all those League of Assassin people and with her clothes half torn up. That was pretty cool. I liked this issue, and I'm glad to see Yost go and see Fabian return, but Yost's going away present is five out of five batterings. Overall, yeah, I thought that this was a nice and to Yost run the one thing for me is is that i i agree to an extent what dustin was saying about wrapping up all these storylines so quickly but the thing for me is it yost has kind of been to me like off and on in these 12 issues and i feel like this showed what he had the potential to do that he didn't take advantage of i thought the kind of the fight with between roz and tim was pretty was pretty good it was pretty engaging and i think this is definitely not the end of their relationship. I think T- Roz has found his new his heir. But the, but Yost, at the end of this, you could see that he does really get Tim. I will also say I thought Marcus, Marcus Toe was really good in this issue, and he's been really solid throughout this series. But, um, yeah, I am sad. I'm glad to see Yost go, but after reading this issue, it kind of leaves me with this, you know feeling of what could he have done i guess if he had more time although he had a a decent amount of time he had a year so i'll give it four out of five batterings now real quick because you touched on the marcus toe thing i gotta say there must be some kind of like 
universal issue with drawing somebody who is in their upper teens, lower 20s, whatever you want to call it, because we don't know for sure. Because when they're in costume, when they're not in costume, because Ramon Box, Ramon Box you can't draw off, anything. Yeah, Ramon. Well, yeah, Ramon Box started off drawing Red Robin with Chris Yost, and one of the things that we complained about the most was the fact that Tim Drake, when he was in costume, looked completely different than Tim Drake when he was out of costume, proportion-wise, size-wise. It's almost as if his costume is padded or something to make him seem like he's bigger, and I think. That just must be a problem universally in the DC Universe because specifically in this issue, Tim Drake, when he doesn't have, when he's sitting in the Batcave talking to everybody, he does he looks like he dropped five years in age just from taking off that costume. And I don't know, maybe that's just an issue if they don't it's not a set determine of how old he is. Stephanie doesn't have that problem and she's that same age, but then again she's a female. So maybe it's just something to do with being a male around that age. Damien doesn't have that issue because, I mean, he's young. You can only draw a young one way. But for some reason, people are having so 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 many problems with drawing Tim young or in costume and out of costume as the same build and everything. Anyway, all right. So that's uh, so Suave Star on the the website gave it three out of five batterings. So that's going to give it an average of three and a half batarangs out of five. So moving along, we've got Batman 699. This was basically a tie-in story arc to kind of explain the things Tony Daniels has been hinting at, as well as Paul Dini had took a little bit of it as well in Gotham City Sirens to explain what's been going on with Riddler and why he is no longer going to be this private eye detective that we've seen for the last couple of years. I really wasn't pleased with this story. I think it was kind of stupid. I don't understand the Black Spell character, why they needed to bring him in. There's a thousand villains that already exist. I, I don't understand what the necessity is right now to create all these new villains, all these new characters that have nothing to do with the previous characters. Uh, over in Streets of Gotham, we've got uh, the Broker, we've got uh, now the Carpenter, oh wait, the Director. I mean, I, I don't understand why can't we why we can't use people we've had before, why we have to, have, why is there's a sudden need to create all these new characters. But whatever, um, this, the creature, or the character Black Spell, really wasn't that interesting to begin with. He was interesting when he was a magician who was killing people. Then you come to find out it's actually the Riddler killing people, or maybe it is Black Spell killing people, or we don't know. And then Black Spell turns into some kind of creature that turns into a giant tree. Wow. Uh, this is what happens when <clears throat> you're focusing all your attention on Batman 700 and nothing beforehand. So I'm going to give this two out of five batterings. I'm going to give it two out of five batterings as well. It felt like a fill-in issue, and this was supposed to kind of clear the decks and explain what's been going on with the Riddler, but honestly, it just it just feels like they have no plan, and I'm really no more clear on the Riddler status quo than I was before this thing started. Yeah, I, I'm giving this one out of five batterings, and I just feel like this these last two issues was something Tony Daniel just quickly came up with, and just to get to 700, um... This, yeah, this felt like a filler issue. And I feel like Batman 
since Bruce Wayne has left is is really being ignored, and all the action seems to be going on like in Batman and Robin and Red Robin and Batgirl right now, and those are good books. And this this just seems to be consistently lacking something, which I kind of bothers me, I guess. But I only gave this one out of five batterings. So that's going to give it two out of five batterings. <laughs> Moving into Batgirl number ten. Overall, I think this was a good story. It proceeded to continue the. Uh, Flood water or flood rising. I can't remember exactly what the name is, but the the rain storyline that's happening. There are some interesting bits, and then there's some bits that I could care less about. I really would hope that the calculator is out of Batgirl in a very short amount of time because that's more of an Oracle character, and I get that Oracle has has been playing a pretty a pretty big role in Batgirl, but I'm hoping that there's a reason why. Oracle is saying that Batgirl can't be around her, and it's because Calculator doesn't need to be in Batgirl's book. And that can carry on into the the storyline that's happening, or that can carry on into Birds of Prey. Although we probably won't see Calculator in Birds of Prey because Gail not didn't have anything to do with that storyline. That was Tony Bedard. With all of that being said, I really just am sick of seeing the Calculator. I think he's been way too overused in the past two years. And Batgirl, using him in the story of Batgirl, it just seems like uh, we're running out of ideas. So we're going to throw a character that has some history with Oracle. Now, I know that's not completely true because, you know, Calculator's daughter is Wendy. And Wendy has been appearing in the book since the beginning. But I don't know. I, I don't want Batgirl to turn into a Oracle the miniseries sequel which that's what it's starting to feel like, or at least the story arc is. So I'm going to give this 3 out of 5 batterings with hope that the calculator is out very soon. Enough of calculator. He was the villain for what felt like the last 10 issues of Birds of Prey, and then the Oracle miniseries. And we got a break from Luella, and oh look, we're not even done with a year of the Batgirl title, and here's calculator again. Enough. Not even the Joker is this overexposed. My gosh, I'm so tired of Calculator versus Oracle, especially last year when they gave Calculator those stupid Kilgrave powers where he could turn into a computer and go through the internet. That was so stupid. I'm glad that they're not referencing that now. And whatever happened to Oracle's whole thing where it's like, you know, she had these systems in place that Calculator couldn't ever use the internet again. And, like, you know, or she'd go after him. Like, he was basically crippled from using the internet but oh now she's afraid of him again like oh no it's calculator stephanie please hide aside from that i'm loving the book uh that whole tense scene between nick gage and stephanie brown their civilian identities it was a little fun although i'm hoping that they don't go with a stephanie's in love with nick gage thing because that is kind of creepy i like seeing barbara gordon at the college the ending was confusing with zombies throwing up on Oracle and then she turns into a silver computer thing and that's one reason why I don't like calculator stories aside from I mean the dialogue's good the interaction's good between the characters there's good character moments and there's a supporting cast that's fleshed out if calculator wasn't the villain this story would be a lot better but he doesn't bring the story totally down so I'm going to give it three out of five batterings yeah Stephanie Brown continues to be a character that is a lot different from the other members of the Batverse, um, and I really liked, I really like Lee Garbutt's artwork. But yeah, this whole the whole plotline with the calculator and these zombie drones and all this 
it just seemed really this seemed like something that should have been in Oracle. It seems like something that was almost in Oracle. I I don't know. It's just very familiar and there was just there, to me there wasn't a lot of a lot of punch in this issue. It was just kind of like going through the motions. I don't know. I'll give it 2 out of 5 batterings. All right, so it's going to get back room number 10, 3 out of 5 batterings. <laughs> Moving into Batman the Return of Bruce Wayne number 1. Um, gotta say, um, for being an oversized issue, there was a lot of useless things in it, but then again, how much can you really have with cavemen who barely can say full sentences? That was probably the most annoying thing of the issue was the cavemen talk. I'm still trying to figure out why Batman had a problem talking in normal words in the very beginning, and yet, for some reason, as soon as he goes through time... At the end of the book, he's able to talk with no problem. It, did, it was kind of cool to see Superman, Green Lantern, Booster Gold show up, as that'll tie into the miniseries that's happening. I believe it starts next month in June. So that, that'll be interesting to see how that plays into it. It'll be even more interesting if they're always just one step behind Batman all the time. It'd be a pretty crappy uh, miniseries if that was just what was happening all the time. Um, Chris Sprouse, his art was was decent. It worked well for the time period it was. Honestly, I don't think he would have done very well in a more modern time frame. I'm not familiar with Chris Sprouse's work um, outside of this, so I don't know exactly whether or not he would be good at doing something modern, but he worked well for what he did. Um, And that being said, I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. I enjoyed it. The Like you, I was annoyed by the caveman talk, which was inconsistent, because some of the sentences actually seemed coherent, but then they'd be like, me boy, boy become man now? Uh, yeah. I liked that they brought in Vandal Savage, like Dustin. I can totally see the next few issues ending the same way with Bruce moving on, and then Superman coming, oh, just missed him. My only complaint is, as... No offense to Chris Sprouse, he's a good artist, but I feel like for something like Return of Bruce Wayne, they should have one of the greatest, greatest, greatest artists in the industry. Like, someone like Jim Lee, if Jim Lee can get this done on time or whatever. But Or like Andy Kubert, who did the cover. Yeah, um, and that's no offense to Chris Sprouse. I mean, you know, it didn't take away from the story, but I'm glad that they didn't do a scene where you see that rock necklace dropped to the ground and Bruce gets a flashback to his mom's pearl necklace. This was good but not great, in other words, so I'm going to give it a 3 out of 5 batterings. Yeah, even I can't give this 5 out of 5 batterings. I The caveman dialogue and all the dialogue and this broken dialogue, I get that that was, you know, to capture the authenticity of it or whatever, to make you feel like you're in that setting, but it was difficult to read at times. And Chris Sprouse, I thought he did a good job. It's just when I look at Andy Kubert's cover, you know, it's a lot different from what's inside the book. But um, I just I just I I really like this idea, you know, Batman through all these different time periods and eras. So it has a lot of potential for me. And I did like the whole man of bats idea. So I'll give it four out of five batterings. All right. So that's going to give Batman... Return of Bruce Wayne, number one, four out of five batterings. <laughs> Moving into Birds of Prey, number one. Ed Bennis' art, as usual, is very good. The comment we read earlier uh, in comic news about Gail Simone, where it looks like 
he never stopped working on the book. That's exactly what it looks like. Uh, he looks like he just kept working on it. But he has gotten better than his past work on the book. I will say that. Overall, for a first issue to bring back the Birds of Prey, uh, I don't know. You know, I could have swore Gail Simone was, said that she wasn't going to do the overabundance of feminism remarks or necessity for it, or I don't know. I, I swear there was some comment made at some con about that and how there wasn't a real need to, to you know, bash guys or talk about how, you know, talk about the unnecessary things. They could be a group that is women and be good at what they do, and it doesn't have to be just because they don't have any guys in the group, which, oh wait, they do. I want to give this something higher, but problem is I just don't feel like it's really going anywhere. This White Canary character, I'm not really feeling it. Like, she hyped this character up and was hyping, hyping, hyping. And I know it's only first issue, and really there was only just the, the last, it was really just the end of the issue that it, we really found out about this character, but... A complete opposite of Black Canary. How really original is that? We have complete opposites to a lot of characters in the DC Universe. And I gotta say, I think that's been overdone. And her coming from Wonder Woman, it's, uh, gotta say, not really liking what, what, what's going on right this second. But that's not to say it can't get better. So I give it a hopeful 2 out of 5 betterings. Okay, everybody's acting like the bird, like within the issue, the birds are acting like they haven't spoken with each other or seen each other and been together in so long. The book was only canceled maybe less than two years ago, and in DCU time, it's pro- it probably hasn't even been like six months or something uh, in their lives. And even without that, Oracle's still talking to them all the time and, you know, seeing them during these heck. Babs and Helena have been interacting throughout the no hyphen Batman run and all this black is night crossover and stuff like that. I mean, you know, black canary, you know, was part of the network over in battle for the cow. It's not like the birds have not spoken with each other forever, but it's like, Oh, I haven't seen you in years. And I know it's sentimental and it's a reunion. And some people online were saying it wasn't just a reunion for the birds. It was metaphorical because Gail Simone is coming back to the book. It's a reunion between Gail Simone and the readers and Helena is representing. Oh, give me a break. It's just a comic book. Now, I like Gail Simone, and I think she did, she's, if you're going to have a Birds of Prey book, have Gail Simone be writing it. I already did my rant about this being a new number one a few episodes ago, so forgetting about that, you know, the, the scene at the beginning was good with the international crisis. I thought that the Hawk and Dove stuff was a little hokey. Oh, Hawk's so moody. <gasps> I bet you that Hawk, when he gets with the Birds of Prey, he's going to learn the lighten up, because that's not a storyline that hasn't been repeated a thousand times with every single other character. Heck, aren't they doing something similar with Wendy Harris right now? Nice that uh, Barbara's whole college stuff isn't being mentioned. And, oh, she mentions Charlie, the girl who she practically abandoned. That's great. That's great. Look, the art's good. I'm a guy. And that whole girly girly, oh, I've missed you so much scene. That probably wasn't written for me. So maybe I should think about the scene like a woman, pretend that I have estrogen or something, but maybe it's not supposed to do anything for me. I don't know. The story was mostly good, but that whole scene literally makes it lose two batterings. So I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. Yeah, Ed Bennis' artwork is, is really, really good. 
And kind of in contrast to what we were just talking about with Andy Kuber and Chris Sprouse, you know, he Ed Bennis does the cover and the artwork's just as good on on the outside and the inside. But Birds of Prey, you're not you're barking up the wrong tree with me. Like this isn't I'm not I'm all for strong female characters, but I'm not into the whole, you know, oh I've missed you for so long and all the f- the feminist talk. That's just not really my my thing. But yeah, as far as this being a first issue, I didn't I didn't was not that impressed with it, but we'll see. I'll give it three out of five batterings. And Zayus on the uh, website gave it four out of five batterings, so that's going to give Birds of Prey number one three out of five batterings. <laughs> Moving along, Azrael number eight. I'm not even going to bother talking about this. Uh, I'm going to give it zero out of five batterings. Fabian, I really hope that writing for Azrael hasn't ruined you for your return to Tim Drake. I really do. It does look like they're taking Michael Lane in some new interesting territories with him joining these deadly sin people. But as I've said before, I don't care about Michael Lane. Sure, take him in a new interesting direction or something. I just don't care. And as I say, every time I review this issue, as I review this comic book, if I don't care about the character, then I can't get into the book. So one out of five batterings. Some recent reflection, this was not a very good issue, and like everyone else, like we say every week, every episode of this show, we don't, we just really don't care. I thought there were some nice little things with Ra's al Ghul seeming like he's going to take a, a bigger, he's got a bigger role in all this and all that, and that's great. Um, it had a very Da Vinci Code kind of thing going on in it, like it refers to in the, in the story, but um also, this is no big surprise. Ramon Box is just simply messy and sloppy, and it makes this book really bad. And um, this story was not good, and boy, do I give it zero or do I give it one? I'll give it half a battering. And, you know, I do have to make one comment. Um, I think one of the reasons Fabian has so much, so many problems with this character, besides the fact that the art sucks, is more of uh, the character is not established. When Fabian came on to Robin, Tim Drake, he, I mean, there was a lot of things that he picked up that other people left and didn't touch or didn't finish, and he's, he can do that. I don't think Fabian's the guy to really, you know, go at uh, starting a character because he's the guy who comes in and he's the fixer. He's not the uh, creator, so, uh, you know, per se. And that's just my observation. So anyway, that's uh, going to give Azrael a half a battering out of f- five. Uh, Batman Streets of Gotham. Um, I got to say, the story was by Paul Dini. The script was by Dustin Wen. I wonder why. Uh, that's interesting. Um, maybe because Dini has something else better to do. I don't know. Uh, we know the June issue... That's or the the issue that's coming out or that that just came out. Gotham City Sirens twelve doesn't even have Dini in it again. It has a story by Tony Bedard. Yeah. So anyway, with that being said, I find the story to actually be somewhat interesting with the Carpenter. But it goes back to what's the point of creating all of these new characters? I don't understand it, and I don't understand like maybe Dini has got into his mind. Oh, hey, you know, we created all these new characters for the animated series, and some of them took off. Some of them didn't, but some of them did. So maybe, just maybe, some of these characters will take off. 
and other people will use them because they'll think, hey, that's a cool idea. I don't know. I don't know if maybe maybe Dini's trying to go for like the, the a record of the creator who co- creates the most Batman villains. I don't know. Maybe he's gonna be Mister Three Thousand, but he's Mister yeah. Three Thousand villains. Yeah, maybe. It, I don't know what it is, but uh, I mean, I find the interest. I find the Carpenter interesting. The director, not so much. I <laughs> superhero snuff films. Really? Do you really think you're gonna get really far with that? I don't think so. Um, so yeah, uh, not a bad story. I'm interested to see where it goes. Art as usual by Dustin Wen, excellent. Um, I'm gonna give it four out of five batterings. Now the Manhunter co-feature. We're one issue away from the end of this co-feature, and I don't think it can come soon enough. I have no clue who in the world half the people that are looking for her son are. I assume one of them is her ex-husband. I don't know which one. I know somebody's name is Monroe, but at the same time, he was telling somebody to call him Iron. I guess this is a little bit into the DC Universe that I don't know about, because I don't know who any of these people are, and it's really annoying me because they're making it seem like I should know who they are, but they haven't been referenced at all, except for the last uh, two two co-features that consist of less than seven pages. So that kind of ticks me off. Now, one thing that really whacked me in the face as soon as I started reading this was the art was not the art that it has been. It was much different. I don't know that I could say it's a bad art style, but it's, it's, it is different than what was in here, and I find that to be kind of an annoyance considering they couldn't just keep the same artist for two more issues so that they could finish off with the same artist they had. I think the artist was Jeremy Hahn, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So they couldn't have kept him for two more issues. I, uh, I don't know. There, there's a lot of problems. I don't know how this is going to end. I, I find it interesting that I find it interesting that the beginning of this thing was uh, Kate Spencer takes down Two Face, Harvey Dent, and it's a uh, battle of the the lawyers, or battle of the district, district attorneys. attorneys. Yeah, uh, and I find I found that interesting. But somehow it for the road came up and it took an immediate left turn and went decided to go. Hey, we don't need to finish this uh, thing about Two Face. We're going to finish this thing about Jane Doe because Jane Doe is such an interesting character that we all care about. She puts on people's skins or fake skin or whatever. And goes and pretends that she's people. I'm not really finding it interesting. It's really kind of dumb. And I attribute a lot of this uh, co-feature's failure to that. And the um, understanding that somehow I'm supposed to know who these other people are. If I never... Especially with the fact that... I'm sorry. The reason why the Manhunter Manhunter series kept getting cancelled was because nobody was reading it. So how do you expect people who never read it, who read Batman comics to somehow know who these people are and to put a lot of uh, knowledge into this. I'm sorry. The co-feature, I'm going to give uh, one out of five batterings. Yeah, uh, Paul good, Dini. I'm, I, I know why they gave Paul Dini two titles in this new Batman relaunch that they did last year. Because they figured that if they gave him at least two titles, they might be lucky to get ten issues out of him in a year. <laughs> I, this is... It's it's just because it's become a joke, and I'm sad that it's a joke because it's not a joke about some other writer like Grant Morrison. It's about Paul Dini, and Paul Dini should never be a joke. 
I'm sorry. Dustin Wen, the art is good. Paul Dini, however much he was involved with the story, with Dustin Wen and, and writing and drawing it, it's, it's enjoyable. Uh, Streets of Gotham is enjoyable, and it doesn't get involved in the like five-year Grant Morrison plan. It's just some nice stories, and it draws from continuity. I always love that. Manhunter, it looks like they're wrapping stuff, some stuff up. I'm not sure where it's going, though. I'm not sure if I care, but I'm going to give it the whole book between Manhunter and Streets of Gotham, three out of five batterings. Yeah, the, the Streets of Gotham story is, it was fun. It's not anything really good. And just to also say, listen, Paul Dini, yeah, you want to create all these characters, the carpenter, the director, the broker. Next will be the fisherman, and then the hairstylist, <laughs> and then the barber, and then, you know, the, the butcher. Barber. I could see the barber and the butcher. The butcher. And the, I mean, and the candlestick maker. Yeah, you know, sure, that's that's fine. And maybe one of them will become something you know, popular, but I don't, I don't know when you're just using all of these, you know, whatever villains, specifically the director who I just, yeah, I also thought was complete. That was ridiculous. I don't know. It just, it doesn't keep me as, as engaged and interested. And Manhunter is just really, it's disappointing to me because I remember really enjoying this and it just keeps falling down and down and down. And it just keeps getting worse and, I don't know if it's the whole not understanding who in this book is because Mark Andreco, who also wrote a lot of the original series, thinks that somehow when people weren't reading it, all of a sudden they have read it now and that they figured out what was going on there. And so he can use the recycle these characters from that time. I don't really know what he's doing. And it's just it's all in wrap up mode now. And it's you know, it's going. So let it go. So I'll give the whole book also three out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Batman Streets of Gotham the entire book, a total of three out of five batterings. Moving to Superman Batman number 72, Paul Levitz did not disappoint. Um, I found it interesting. It was kind of a nod back to the Silver Age, which was a interesting th- thought. Um, I do want to see where this goes in the next issue. The art was really good, surprisingly good. Um, I'm not familiar with Orde's work. But I found it to be very good. So I'm going to give this one four out of five batteries. I was prepared to hate this, but especially because it's Superman, Batman, and especially because it's Paul Levitz. And if Dan DiDio has taught me anything, it's that when upper management of DC decides to write, head for the hills. But you know what? This This didn't really suck. It was kind of fun, kind of kooky. You know, I mean, when you kind of turn your brain off and say, you know, just go with it. It's a silvery homage. You can excuse some of the silly stuff. So I'm going to give it four out of five batterings, and I hope that we see more along these lines and less along the lines of <laughs> the past 20 issues. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Silver Age nod, and I was not... I know some of Jerry Ordway's prior stuff, so I knew it was going to be at least pretty good, and it was really good. My problem is I... F- this issue was a lot of setup, and I felt like it was a lot of filler at the same time. And I see that Levitz is going to try to build something bigger here. But just for a first issue in an arc, I was a little disappointed, but I see the potential. So I'll give this three out of five batterings. All right, and Steve J. Rogers gave Superman Batman number 72 four out of five batterings. So that's going to give Superman Batman number 72 
a complete total of four out of five batarangs. All right, so that's all of our review wrap-up. Let's throw over Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Hello and welcome to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm Nick and today I'm looking at a rather special book called The Killing Joke, which is a one-shot which was originally published in 1988. It's written by the iconic comic book writer Alan Moore, who's written such books as The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Watchmen. And the art is provided by Brian Bolland, who has provided art for Batman Black and White also. So, this book has a lot of hype around it, lots of praise. Is it as good as they all say it is? Let's see what I think of the Joker's origin story. Batman rushes to Arkham Asylum to meet the Joker for a discussion about their future, as he feels they're both on course to kill each other. However, the man there is not the Joker, he's an imposter dressed up and in makeup, and Batman quickly realises this. The real Joker has just swindled a landlord out of his property, an abandoned, dilapidated fairground. Later on we see Barbara Gordon and Commissioner Gordon, they're at home, when there's a knock at their door. Barbara opens the door, and it is the Joker, with a gun and a camera. He shoots Barbara Gordon, who collapses in pain, and then kidnaps Commissioner Gordon, leaving Barbara on the floor. We do have flashbacks throughout the book telling us of the Joker's past life. He's a failing comedian, living in poverty with his pregnant wife. He's fed up of not being able to find a job. He meets some guys in a bar who seem a bit shifty, they seem to be gangsters, and he's there to aid them in a raid at his previous workplace, a chemical warehouse. He needs to get the money that he feels his wife deserves. However, just before the raid is planned, the Joker learns his wife has died in a freak accident, along with his baby. The man continues with the raid, however, although he's clearly distracted by the death of his wife and child. During the raid, the gangsters make the man wear a red helmet associated with the red hood. The men do get spotted and by security, and Batman arrives and confronts the red hood. The man jumps off the railing and lands in a river underneath the chemical plant and swims to safety. However, he feels his skin burn. He takes off his helmet and his appearance has changed. His skin is now white and his hair is green. He laughs manically and falls into insanity as the Joker is born. Back in the present time, Commissioner Gordon has been awoken and is stripped naked and forced by the Joker to ride one of his fairground rides, a ghost train with photos of his naked daughter in pain, shown to Gordon in an attempt by the Joker to drive Commissioner Gordon insane. Batman arrives at the fairground, saves Gordon and learns his sound of mind. Gordon tells Batman to get the Joker by the book to show him that their way works. Batman pursues the Joker, confronts him, 
and tells him that he wants to help him, to rehabilitate him. But the Joker pauses for a moment, considering it, but then tells him, but then tells Batman it's too late for him. And the Joker tells Batman a joke. It goes a little bit like this. There were two guys in a lunatic asylum, and one night they decide they don't like living in an asylum anymore. They decide they're going to escape. So they get up onto the roof, and there, just across this narrow gap, they see the rooftops of the town stretching away in the moonlight, stretching away to freedom. Now the first guy, he jumps right across with no problem, but his friend didn't dare make the leap. He's afraid of falling. So then the first guy has no idea. He says, hey, I have my flashlight with me. I'll shine it across the gap between the buildings. You can walk along the beam and join me. But the second guy just shakes his head and he says, what, do you think I'm crazy? You turn it off when I was halfway across. Joker breaks into laughter and Batman even shares a smile. Laughs with the Joker. Batman grabs the Joker and the two figures disappear into the night. I thought this book was true to the Joker's psychosis. The Joker doesn't want to accept responsibility for his actions and goes about attempting to prove that any man put under proper duress would go insane. I thought this was an interesting way of thinking about the psychology of the Joker. He's shown as a vulnerable and pathetic figure trapped in a cycle of violence just like Batman. We get to learn a lot more of the Joker. The book's execution is superb. The narrative flows beautifully, despite flashing between the present day and the past. It's wonderfully executed, from the links between the two storylines to the panels that say a lot without the need for words, just visually telling the story at many times in the book. Many plaudits have been thrown at Alan Moore's take on the Joker's backstory, and I can see why. What Moore does well is to demonstrate that both Batman and the Joker have suffered similar tragedy, but channeled their emotions differently. Whereas Batman uses his parents' death as a means to drive his desire to protect people, the Joker is unable to come to terms with his personal tragedy. He doesn't have any support, he has no other family. And in this way we can see the Joker as a tragic and misunderstood character. That's why the end of the killing joke resonates in such a way. His scheme is diabolical. It's one of the ugliest Batman stories I've read. Very violent and twisted crimes that the Joker's committing. It's really sickening method of revenge. And you, you're hoping for some severe punishment to be done, delivered to the Joker. But the flashbacks to the Joker's past may in turn have you feeling some sympathy for a man who just wanted to take care of his family but ended up disfigured and insane. The book's really about twisted fate and redemption. Both Batman and the Joker are victims of events, be of events beyond their control and now must live with the consequences. You've got to realise that this background story may not be the authentic telling of the Joker's origin as the villain himself admits to harbouring conflicting memories about his past. Another theme explores the possibility that Batman is just as insane as the criminals he faces. I've always loved 
this facet of the Batman universe in that the people in Arkham Asylum are insane but we still have a man running around as a bat he may be doing the right thing but it's still pretty crazy and it's just how insanity manifests in different ways Moore has been quoted as saying that psychologically Batman and the Joker are mirrored images of each other and I loved the fact that Batman and the Joker are creations of a random and tragic one bad day. Batman spends his life forging meaning from the random tragedy, whereas the Joker reflects the absurdity of life and all its random injustice. There were some really simple parts in the book, but worked so well, as I mentioned before. No dialogue. It wasn't needed at certain parts. You didn't need it thanks to the way the story is being told and the art being excellent. I liked the fact that Bruce mentions how can two people who know so little about each other hate each other so much, as Bruce and the Joker really don't know much about their own personas. I think Joker's origin is fairly good. It's um, you know, regarding the fact he's a weak stand-up comedian and he's struggling with his family life, you do feel sympathy for him and you do identify the challenges that he's coming up against. It's a very cerebral book. It's very interesting comments of madness and how some people go mad because they cannot take life. And it's quite dark in certain areas. And Alan Moore really does a good job of making this a very interesting book to, to, to read. And then there's a lot to talk about when you're done with it. Now, there has been some criticism for the book. The writer Alan Moore himself has used the words clumsy, misjudged and devoid of real human importance describing the story. He, but he's a little bit of a strange guy. But he's clearly not too happy with the work he did. I think he's being a little bit harsh. But then again, while the morally ambiguous ending is a great scene in its own right, it doesn't square well with the actions of the Joker in the preceding pages. He did just shoot Barbara Gordon... He's trying to make Commissioner Gordon insane. Why does he suddenly ease off when Batman turns up? The Killing Joke is a classic Alan Moore script with a lot of depth. However, it does suffer, I think, from only one small problem. It's crippled by the reliance on the rules of the superhero story. There's no design, there's no denying this is a wonderful Batman story, but there are certain rules that I think need to be followed. And at the beginning of the book, we're looking at a story that's quite different. Joker is a bit more brutal than usual. He does unspeakable acts of violence. And Batman can only see an end where one or the other are destroyed. However, the ending is a little bit more traditional than the promise that we were given at the start. And as a result, a little bit disappointing. Batman catches Joker. Joker goes back in Arkham Asylum. I think from a book that's so epic throughout, I was hoping for a slightly better ending. And also... I'm not sure I agree with this, but I know that some people think that the Joker's tragic past doesn't seem a good enough reason for the Joker to ultimately be the way that he is all of the time. Even though I do think we get a slight moment towards the end when Batman tries to help the Joker. The Joker does... it feels like the Joker stops for a moment and considers this help and whether it's worth taking. Which I think was the first time we've ever seen the Joker be slightly sensible. The story, though, is a little bit short, and so that's why some people feel that the backstory doesn't do enough to justify the Joker as he is now. I do feel more sympathy for the Joker, yes. Some people think they, under they understand him better, yes, but some people don't think it's the definitive Joker backstory, but there's not quite enough of it there. Uh, the art in the book, each scene had perfect transitions, jumping from past to present, 
and the story was easily weaved between the two time zones. Everyone's face was full of so much expression, and Moore's dialogue really worked well with Bolland's organic art, creating a really unique story with some of the best interior artwork I've ever seen in a comic. It's just stunning, and the characters' expressions speak for themselves, which adds to the fact that you don't need too much dialogue when you understand what's going on with just the art. So it is an immense book, and when compared over all the books I've reviewed over the last year or so, this one stands out above most of them, even though it's a very brief story. It's compelling from the first panel to the last, and I've seen some one-shots that haven't got close to anywhere near close to as much intrigue as in this book. It's true when they're using the Joker, the interest always goes up in a story, just because it's the Joker. But so does the pressure on the writer and the creative team. There's a pressure there for them to deliver a good story. And Alan Moore pretty much delivered with this one. With just enough ambiguity to keep everyone happy about the biggest origin story in the Batman universe. The art was brilliant, the story was excellent. So it's got to be 5 out of 5. It couldn't be anything different, could it? If you haven't read this one, and you're listening to this podcast, get it quick. It'd be funny if it weren't so pathetic... No, what the heck, I'll laugh anyway. <laughs> now, a few notes quickly um, of the influences that Killing Joke has had. Tim Burton claimed that the Killing Joke influenced his film adaptation of Batman in 1989. Director for Chris Nolan has mentioned that The Killing Joke served as an influence for the version of the Joker in The Dark Knight. Heath Ledger, who played the Joker, stated in an interview that he was given a copy of The Killing Joke as a reference for his role. The film lifted the concept of the Joker trying to drive a well-regarded person insane. In this case, it was Harvey Dent, and he's trying to push him over the edge after killing his fiancée. As well as the Joker's inconsistent origin stories, as seen in The Killing Joke and The Dark Knight, Joker claiming that the scars in his face that form his smile in the film were caused by child abuse or self-mutilation. Different points. Never clear as to what is the defining origin. And also, in 2009's Batman Arkham Asylum game, there are several notable references to the story also made in the game with Joker's makeshift throne made of mannequins at the end of the game, identical to the one contained in the novel. And Joker even personally makes a knowing reference to the story, saying, there are these two guys in Lunatic Asylum, have I told you that one before? The joke from the end of the killing joke. I'll break you in two. <laughs> Batman, if you had the guts for that kind of fun, you would have done it years ago. I, on the other hand. Ah! I hope you enjoyed that mammoth book that I reviewed. Next time I'm going to be learning more about a strange group who are brainwashing citizens of Gotham, including Batman, in the book The Cult. There is a new book list on the forums, so make sure you check that out. Get involved, send us messages. Also, get on there and let us know what you thought of The Killing Joke. Is it brilliant? Is it the best? Are there better? Is it overrated? Let us know. Get on the forums. Tell us all about it. Well, I've been Nick, and now I leave you with some of the best moments from 
the killing joke. And I'll see you next time. So, I see you received the free ticket I sent you. I'm glad. I did so want you to be here. You see, it doesn't matter if you catch me and send me back to the asylum. Gordon's been driven mad. I've proved my point. I've demonstrated that there's no difference between me and everyone else. All it takes is one bad day to reduce the sanest man alive to lunacy. That's how far the world is from where I am. Just one bad day. You had a bad day once. Am I right? I know I am. Why else would you dress up as a flying rat? You had a bad day, and it drove you as crazy as everybody else. Only you won't admit it. You have to keep pretending that life makes sense, that there's some point to all this struggling. God, you make me want to puke. I mean, what is it with you? What made you what you are? Girlfriend killed by the mob, maybe? Brother carved up by some mugger? Something like that, I bet. Something like that. Something like that. Happened to me, you know. I'm not exactly sure what it was. Sometimes I remember it one way, sometimes another. If I'm going to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. <laughs> My point is, I went crazy. When I saw what a black, awful joke the world was, I went crazy as a coot. <laughs> I admit it. Why can't you? I mean, you're not unintelligent. You must see the reality of the situation. Do you know how many times you've come close to World War Three over a flock of geese on a computer screen? Do you know what triggered the last world war? An argument over how many telegraph poles Germany owed its war department creditors. Telegraph poles! <laughs> it's all a joke! Everything anybody ever valued or struggled for, it's all a monstrous demented gag. So why can't you see the funny side? Why aren't you laughing? Alright, so that's going to take us into our upcoming releases for the next two weeks. On June 2nd, we have Batman Confidential number 45, The Joker's Asylum, The Riddler, Red Hood, Lost Days number 1 of 6, Red Robin number 13, and Superman Batman Annual number 4. On June 9th, we have The Outsiders number 30, The Joker's Asylum, Harley Quinn, Superman Batman, Finest Worlds, Batgirl number 11, Batman 700 and Gotham Central Book 3 on the Freak Bat. Now, as you can tell, just by those two weeks, there's a whole lot of books coming out in June. This really is going to be the 75th anniversary of DC by them releasing so many books, nobody will buy them. All right, Except we'll for us. Play. Yeah. So what we cover on the next episode, we will be covering Batman Return of Bruce Wayne number 2, Detective Comics 865, Gotham City Sirens number 12, Batman Confidential number 45, Red Hood Lost Days number 1, Red Robin number 13, and Joker's Asylum, The Riddler. Ah! You sunk my battleship! 
So that's everything for this episode. As always, I want to remind everybody about the quiz show. If you are interested in becoming the ultimate Bat fan of the Batman universe, send us an email and let us know that you want to be interested that you want to be involved in the quiz show. You can always follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can head over to the forums and become a member and email us if your account hasn't been activated. You can also check out the website for daily news posted every single day. Any news at all about comics or anything else related to Batman that can be found on the website. You can leave us a review on iTunes. And I'm also going to throw out an open call to anybody who would be interested in reviewing comics. Some of our normal comic reviewers have moved on with their lives and are no longer reviewing comics. So we have a ton of comics that are not being reviewed currently. We do have Red Robin, Birds of Prey, Batgirl, and Superman Batman taken care of right now but there are a ton of books that are not being reviewed and there's a ton more books that will be starting in june that will need to be reviewed as well for the website so if you're interested in that send us an email and let us know and we'll get you hooked up with the book all right so that's everything for this episode if you've got any other comments questions or concerns you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net so this is dustin you got josh and this is zach You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Take care, everybody. suck if this episode somehow stopped recording at some point oh yeah that, that, would, really, that would that would really suck right speaking of hokey did anybody read birds of prey no offense to chris sprouse because he's a good artist but for something like return of bruce wayne they should have had like not a good artist but a really 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 awesome artist like i know like maybe you know get Jim Lee to start doing it five years ago and maybe, you know, it would all be out on time, but... No, you want to know what was really bad art? Andy Clark and Batman Robin number 12. Well, Andy Clark in general, I think... I don't really think he's that great. Specifically, Talia looks like... I don't know, like... I, I don't know, like, maybe he just can't draw women, but, like, Talia was proportioned wrong... Her face was just ugly. She did not look good at all. For being somebody that Batman impregnated, you would think she would look a little better than she does. It seems like uh, everybody, every artist seems to struggle drawing women in that book. Except for the merch. And this is Black Canary, and it's so good for us all to be together again. Josh, People are going to think you are the biggest queer after listening to this episode because I'm putting everything you say into the outtakes. <laughs> okay, first of all, I'm saying it in a condescending tone. Like I don't I care. It. Some people don't get that. Okay, We get that because okay. we know you. Okay. okay. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. No. 
And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Aren't you going to say happy happy? Have a happy. Hey, hey Damien, I f***ed your mom. <laughs> Alright, so yeah, I'm going to convert this and send this over. Nobody said goodbye. You didn't say goodbye.